Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. The film board gathers. The gang of thugs is here to take on a movie mostly in theaters. And this month, we're meeting one of our favorites, right where he wants us. It's David Fincher's The Killer. I find music a useful distraction. A focused tool. Keeps the inner voice from wandering. This is what it takes. 
process is purely logistical. If I'm effective, it's because of one simple fact. I don't give a Oh, hi, thugs, Justin Yeager and Tommy Metz. It's so good to see you. Again. Hello, hello. Hello. From, from where I you. sit. Through mm -hmm. my sniper scope, <laughs> through your windows. <laughs> uh, we are talking about the killer, and we, I think all three of us, we held off to see it where most people will likely see it, which is on Netflix. Uh, and so I, I just want to start briefly with your feelings about this as a, uh, as a theatrical film. I, well, I will say, so, uh, you know, my initial feelings about the movie are very positive. And because of that, I'm very curious to think what it would be like to see it in the theater. Um, it was a, I, I think it was a unique experience to see it on Netflix. It felt like a very sort of pandemic thing. I'm sitting at home, I'm captive, yeah. I'm watching this movie. And there's, there's unique things about this movie that kind of lend itself to an interesting environment. So I'm, I'd be interested to see it in the theater. But there's also many things about it that that kind of scream to you like, oh, this is streaming. And we can talk about that too. So um, uh, yeah, I, right. I, I think it, I, I really liked the movie and I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. It's actually kind of, it's almost like a meta comment, the fact that it's also streaming because of the through run of like Americana, Americanism, merchandising, consumerism that sort of runs through yeah. this weird, extremely highbrow, full of himself character who has very lowbrow tendencies a lot of times, which is really interesting. He speaks so sort of fluently. And when he puts his earbud in his ears, he does it with his pinky out. And then he goes and gets 10 grams of protein at McDonald's. <laughs> I thought that, right. was, that was like low-key delightful. Uh, yeah. The story is, uh, of course, we were, we're following a professional assassin played by Michael Fassbender, who finds himself in an international manhunt after a job goes awry. The assassin is known for his meticulousness, his methodical preparations, and his life is thrown into disarray when he accidentally kills the wrong target. This sets off a chain of events which leads him to be pursued, and he must navigate through several dangerous situations, including a conversation with a terrified one percenter to survive. Um, okay, so that is the killer. That's the movie. Mm -hmm. I, I watched the movie on my VR headset again, so I had the oh, home yeah. IMAX oh, experience, yeah. <laughs> which was yeah. amazing. It was absolutely perfect. The sensory deprivation chamber, I, I like to call it. And <laughs> uh, I found the movie um, fascinating in that I kept wondering, did David Fincher make this or Steven Soderbergh? <laughs> like, it felt, it, it felt a little bit off-kilter for Fincher from scene to really? scene. Huh. Your take. Well, give us some opening thoughts. Uh, uh, JJ, give us, why don't you talk about it? Well, and now, and now you're describing why I liked it so much, because I'm a, a sort of Soderbergh honk for sure. Um, it, you know, I, some of those things, those, again, I've used this word on our podcast before, but those things that feel like novelty as you're watching the film, like, oh, wait a second, mm -hmm. this isn't part of the film. This isn't part of the story. This is just throwing in. The thing that I would use that I noticed a lot is when the POV changed, the audio changed in terms of the music that he was listening to, right? Yes. Like w if we're seeing his POV, we're hearing it as if it's in his headphones. When we're out of it, it's separate. I love mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And they did that in a lot of different ways in this movie. So I dig it. And I was all bought in for all that. And yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about the Soderbergh connection, Pete, but that is totally a connection for me, for sure. That's interesting. I thought it was incredibly Fincher-ish. Um, 
Like this might be his hmm. most Fincherish and you? weirdly for Fincher, who is such a dispassionate, passionate filmmaker. Like he's so cold and it's all green and yellows and stuff like this. This is like the closest to him, like making a comedy. Like this is it's stripped. It's like stripped down almost <laughs> to me. We could talk about the plot. It's maybe stripped down one step too much for me. Like I was really like, oh, this is just David Fincher's John Wick in effect, and he's doing it in a way of being like, no, I'm not going to give you all these toys. And no one has these crazy world. It's going to be slow mm -hmm. and methodical. The beginning of the movie tells you about the movie, which is if you can't handle boredom, this isn't for you because I'm going to do this incredibly realistically and slowly, yeah. and I'm not in it for the thrills. I'm in it for the competency of it all. This movie is really competency porn. Um, which is what I had to <laughs> realign halfway through when I realized, oh, that woman that we had not met yet being hurt off camera is the John Wick dog moment that if that's, mm -hmm. and it was so not that much emotion mm -hmm. for it. And I was like, well, maybe Fincher doesn't care about the emotion. He doesn't need this. And it's just this guy going step by step by step by step. I'm going to just clean up all of this. See, and, and for me, that's grounded in the character, right? So I and, right. And I guess maybe I need to sort of caveat all this with the fact that I was completely bought into the experience of everything that you're talking about in that, yeah, yeah, we didn't meet her. Yeah, the story is somewhat dispassionate, but that's the character. I mean, that's the, right. the POV that we have here. And it's done in a grounded, personal way. I was thinking John Wick the whole way through, Tommy. That's I was the same yeah. way of like, oh, this is, again, it, it, whether or not this is real, maybe we should talk about that too. This whole hitman idea in the world. I have no yeah. idea, you know, this kind of thing. But this yeah. is more grounded in a way like, oh, yeah, John Wick is fanciful. And, this, and, right. and there's mythology in John Wick. This is a journalistic take on what that I, world would maybe be like. I don't know. John Wick, in comparison, is more of a comic book movie, yeah. which is funny because, ironically, this was a comic book. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, this is yes. this is a graphic novel, a, a French graphic novel. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so, and it's very, it's it is different. Like he's much, he's a much bigger character, and a little bit more James Bondy in the graphic novel. Like he's sleeping with people and stuff. Like he has more of a lavish kind of thing, and they just stripped it to the bone. Yeah. Uh, and I was just so excited to have Fincher team back up with Andrew, Andrew Kevin, Kevin Walker, Walker. Yeah. Uh, who wrote seven. Nice. I, I, so I'll just say, because I don't think we've, we've said it. It sounds like you guys, obviously JJ are, are a fan of the movie and, and Tom sounds like you are bullish on the movie. Uh, yes. I, I felt like as I was watching it, I can't quite imagine another movie like this that was made for me. And my psyche like I this is I feel like the killer movie. I'm, I'm super into assassin movies for some reason. And this is that movie like I loved this movie a lot. Like to the this is one mm. of those movies that I walked I, I walked out of. I took off my helmet and <laughs> I immediately wanted to put the helmet back on. And then Netflix asked me to add another user to my account for eight bucks. And I was like, screw that Netflix. And I didn't watch it again. But I might. The the whole point is it was. um it, it was lovely and patient, and I loved the way it. I loved the way it looked, and and we should say this is a bit of a, a, an interesting conversation that we're having right now because you two had the opportunity to talk to Eric Messerschmidt, uh, yep. who is the cinematographer on this thing, and had a lovely conversation with Eric, and I think we should probably toss to some of it at some point. Do, uh, do you want to? 
Do you want to set up that conversation? Yes, definitely. And I kind of want to call him back because I have so many more questions now after we've seen the movie. Yeah. Uh, A lot of the things that I would have asked before seeing the movie, um, I felt uncomfortable asking, you know, about this sort of stuff from my background, like what kind of motion control did you use and all these kind of things. And then there were so many great stuff. There's so many great things from the camera perspective in terms of motion control and all the things that I'm sort Mm -hmm. of connected to that I really want to geek out with Eric Messerschmidt about. But we spoke with him and we spoke with him in advance to see this movie. And we asked him a lot of things about like process and what he enjoys and, and sort of his connection to the film. And and then the kind of things of like, what should we know before we go? And what were some of the, your favorite things that we should keep an eye out for? And he gave us some great things to look for. Um, yep. I, it, it really set the table for how I took in The Killer. The, the movie is a, is a film about precision and control. I mean, that's what the character, you know, the characters, his sort of resting state is, is in one of, of, of um, extreme control and, and uh, and so we use the camera very much to support that idea, you know, hopefully. And, uh, and so that, you know, there's, we're trying to use the camera in, in ways that, that, um, that support his state of mind. Um, so hopefully the audience picks up on that, you know, but there, I mean, there's a sequence, there's a fight sequence in the film. That's, that's quite elaborate. That's several, several minutes long that, that, um, was an extraordinary amount of work. So, you know, we're certainly proud of that, but, uh, but, you know, I think, I hope people see the whole movie as, as 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 one piece of work, you know. With precision and control, does that mean maybe the opposite of a lot of handheld? Is it very sort of locked down, a lot of sticks, a lot of Well, yeah, I mean we, we sort of we experiment with that a bit, you know. I mean it's the the um you know, so much of cinema today um is pointing the camera at actors and actors saying the words, you know, um, <laughs> right. it's, it's, uh, you know, I, 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 I just think it's, I think cinema is more than that. You know, it's, it, it it's, it, and there's, we're, you know, there, there are parts in the film anyway, where we're trying to be very balletic, you know, with the connection between, between Fassbender and, 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 and the operator and the dolly grip, you know, where they're, they're really functioning as one unit. Mm. Um, uh, you know, almost like they're in, ta- they're in a tango, you know, so it's, you know, Brian Osmond, the operator and, and Dwayne Barr, the, the dolly grip and, and, and Michael are, are rehearsing everything together so that they're, they're in, in complete lockstep. Um, uh, there are other points in the film you'll see, you know, when, when Michael's character um, makes mistakes or he's sort of out of his comfort zone where we get into handheld and the, and the, and the camera breaks free a little bit. To show that discord. That's, yeah, that's right. the idea anyway, you know. Um, so, you know, it's, um, and and this is a character who is, uh, who really never lets anyone within his, his personal space and suddenly the camera is there, you know? So this, it's very much a conversation, I think is a cinematic conversation around subjectivity and objectivity. And, and, you know, we, we take the camera and we put it just a little bit closer than you normally would. And so it's, we're sort of right, right inside his personal space all the time, uh, when he's alone, you know? Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's bits of that. And, you know, I don't, I never really want the audience to pick up on the camera work. It's like, I hope they appreciate the movie, you know, and then on uh, second or third viewing, they can go back and say, okay, what did they do here and here, here, et cetera. But and you, it's like, my biggest fear is that it becomes, the, the, the photography becomes distracting from the story, you know. that That's kind of like editing. That sometimes if you really notice yeah. an editor's work, unless it was supposed to be that way, then they haven't done their job. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, 
when you put on a great suit, you know, hopefully someone doesn't, you know, you don't walk down the street and someone says, God, who tailored this? You know, it's like, <laughs> you want people to say, wow, that looks great. You know, um, and, and then the conversation can be, well, who was the tailor? You know, so it's, right. I kind of think of it that way. You know, it's like you, you want it, you know, you want the film to be appreciated as a movie. I think we appreciate that kind of filmmaking, too. Tommy and I are both big fans of some of your TV work as well. Um, you know, some of the stuff that you've oh, done with you. like Legion and, and, and mm. Mindhunters. Legion, I mean, just speaking personally, <laughs> Legion's like my favorite my favorite TV that I've seen in like the last two decades. So I'm that a was fun. huge fan of that. Yeah. Yeah. That was so much fun. And like you're talking about there, they're both incredibly visual, you know, with yeah. uh, with and then, you know, what kind of differences do you have of working with Fincher or like Noah Hawley there and they're, you know, doing that sort of incredibly visual setup, but then different styles between those types of things? Well, you know, the, the joy of being a cinematographer is you get thrown into other people's machines, you know, you get, and I, and I look for filmmakers who have a, you know, generally have a kind of refined, um, practice in place that they've already kind of developed you know i think filmmakers over the course of their careers they 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 um they learn how they want to make films you know and they they sort of they start to they start to curate their process uh, in interesting ways and they're all different you know every filmmaker's different and the things they respond to the things that the, you know the 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 kind of nuts and bolts way they want to run the set, the the way they interact with actors, the way they interact with with a cinematographer, you know, um, and you know, in the case of David, David has a very refined, very specific methodology that that you know is relatively consistent, um, film to film anyway. Um, the movies are not consistent, you know. I mean, the movies are all different. I think, um, and and you know, he he certainly has has aesthetic tendencies i guess you could say um and noah's the same way you know noah um you know responds to certain things he sees the world in a in a different way and you know so it's your job as a cinematographer to come into their you know their world and and, and try to see the world through their eyes you know i think and i mean i really believe you know the director is um you know is the boss and it's the director's film it's the director's project and, and it's your job to support support their their intention well, and, and that makes me think of Mank, too, because, you know, we did a full episode on Mank uh, for this show, for the film board when it came out. And of course, you know, it's in the middle of the pandemic and all these things and everybody's kind of trying to figure out their space. And we all really loved it, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Working with black and white in Mank, you know, is is there is there is that a limiting experience? Is that freeing? Is it is it both in some ways? You know, what? with the different set of uh, camera and lighting that goes along with black and white, how do you approach that? If, if we're thinking about different than, you know, the big screen to streaming. I think cinema is about limiting yeah. fundamentally, you know, it's, that's, it's what we do. You know, we put, we, we, um, we take the camera and we exclude things from the frame. You know, right. we don't really, in, in, it's, I don't think of it as I'm including something in the frame. Sure. You know, I, it's all about what are we taking away? What are we eliminating? You know, it's it's the same way with lighting, but it's it's really that way with 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 framing. You know, and um, and black and white is just an extension of that idea. You know, it's it's so I would say it's 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 limiting in a in a in a creatively fulfilling way. You know, cool. Um, and we do the same thing when we shoot color. By the way, you know, it's like you know your iPhone captures every every color. 
imaginable that, you know, that your eye can see. It's really good at replicating human vision. And then you turn on cinematic mode and it starts to eliminate colors. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what we do. You know, that's what we do with filtrations. We do color grading. That's what we do. So, um, you know, black and white is just an extreme version of that, I think. Um, but, it, you know, it's for me, I love the experience because it's it's such a it distills photography down into the very bare elements of, you know, light, shadow and shape and texture. And you're not you know, you don't you don't have to make the same. You're, you're making very different visual choices. You know, it's it's why, you know, if you shoot something in color and then you convert it to black and white, it never looks great because it's just it's not the same thing. You know, some of my favorite sequences in make uh, were I, I don't. Sorry, I started the sentence before I knew what to call it. Maybe those parlor sequences. It's those sort of uh, vicious circle of Dorothy Parker when they're all like in the sitting room, all sort of tearing each other apart. It's so deceptively simple because it seems so contained. And yet you have characters everywhere at all different parts, all relating to each other. That seems like a thrill a thrilling experience and also a nightmare to try to figure out how to light and make it so the lighting isn't where like you say you don't notice who tailored the suit it all works yeah. seamlessly and perfectly but i'm just blown away by by sequences like that oh thank you yeah i mean you know it's i don't really associate cinematography with photography mm-hmm. i don't i don't i don't i don't think of it first like that like i don't i don't think they're in the same you know, when I think about photography, I think about the placement and position of the camera and what you're, you know, what you're putting in the frame and how you're, how you're selecting that stuff. The, you know, the lighting, the exposure part of it is, is a secondary kind of almost janitorial responsibility of, of the cinematographer, the photographer, you know, you have to expose the frame properly, but really what's important is what you're putting in the shot, you know, mm-hmm. and how you're assembling it. And then in cinema, you know, it's it's how are those shots, how those shots relate to each other. So my favorite part, I mean, the thing that I I really enjoy about the process is the conversation with the director about how we're gonna how we're gonna structure the scene, you know, where we're gonna put the camera, um, how we're gonna cleave the scene apart, how, you know, when we when we cross the line, when we're dogmatic with screen direction, uh, you know, how important is it for the audience to understand what's going on in the, in the space and understand the geography of the space or when is it not relevant, et cetera. You know, those those things I think are are deeply psychological and really important for the audience. And working with uh, Director Fincher, when you have those conversations, do you have a lot of those before filming even begins or are you going to a set? living there for a second and then making those decisions. I guess how, if there is storyboarding, how strict is the storyboarding? Yeah. We generally don't storyboard when I work with David. Um, we generally, we, we generally speak really quickly to each other and we're sort of in there's a very fast shorthand, you know, from here, right? Yeah. And then we'll do the over and then the close up, and then we'll get that POV there. And then we're going to cross the line there. You know, it's like, it's this kind of rapid fire thing yeah. um, that we've developed over the years. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I, I think storyboarding is really useful when um, when you have to describe something logistically to 60 people, you know, um, mm. or you're on a commercial and they're paying by the shot and, the you know, the agency wants to make sure that they're getting what they pay for, you know, so it's right. like it can also be very insulting to actors, you know, mm. because because, you know, there's I just don't I don't know that you can bring an actor into the space and you can say, OK, you're going to stand there and you're going to look to the left without context for why. 
you know, and you can show them the storyboard. Well, look at this. And I'm really interested in this background. And I would just want you to stand. I think the actor deserves more than that. You know, I think it's there's there's more to it than that. Yeah. And I mean, we know that Fincher is kind of legendary for doing a lot of takes. And how much of that involves tweaks to the the visuals of the film, to the things that you're doing from a camera perspective versus, you know, if it's letting actors get into the right headspace or giving another take or that kind of stuff? How much of that involves your process as well? Uh, I mean, it's 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 everything. It's it's sculpture. You know, yeah. it's I, I, I don't. I, I, well, I mean, first of all, I think it's been it's been slightly hyperbolized, you know, Um I mean, there are situations where we do many and there's situations where we do 10, you know, or six. I, I, you know, I, I think that the, there, there is a process of discovery when you're shooting. I mean, there's a process of discovery when you're setting up and you're rehearsing, right? And then you get the camera in place and you get the lighting in place and you get the actor in place and you run the, you run the scene a couple of times and then you start to see things unfold, you know, and, and God, that was interesting. When you pause there, you pause there before. Mm. Um, but you didn't do it in the last take. Can we try that again and see? Because that might motivate it's an evolution. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that's I like. Okay, but if you pause there, like we should maybe we should just put a little bit more light there because I think now we're going to need a close up. And you know, it's like so. You know, I think that that's that's really what we're doing, and it's also you know refining a dolly move, refining refining operating, refining composition, maybe changing a lens. You know, things like that. It's like it's. It's a process. And, you know, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are actors and I've been to a lot of plays and uh, very rarely have I been to a play, the opening, you know, like, for example, you know, you go to a play the opening night and you go to the closing night and you go, you know, you go have a drink afterwards and celebrate the play, you know, very rarely has it been better the opening night than it has the closing night. I mean, I would say almost universally, it's always better the last night, you know, or the very end of the run because the actors are just more natural. They're, you know, they're, they, they're not struggling to remember the dialogue. They're not thinking about the next line. They, it, it comes, it's reflexive. They, it, you know, they're not looking for the marks on the floor. They're, you know, they, the, the, the blocking has been refined over course of, you know, you, you know, it, it happens in place. It's like, God, you know, the last six nights have stopped here, but it really would make a lot more sense if I stopped here. Okay, cool. We're going to adjust the light there. You know, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, the number of takes thing is used against david sometimes as a pejorative and i just don't mm. understand that it's like no guys like i don't know what you're talking about this is about this is about making something better almost always you know and on the 15th take you still have the 10th right, right. yeah but at least you went there you know what i mean yeah it's like look if the fourth take is better like it's it, it's it's in the can man you know but we 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 tried and yeah we didn't find anything better you know um to me that's always better than like well that's that's pretty good Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you know. And you're yeah. there. I mean, just, I know maybe it's a little bit more apropos to smaller budget things, but like you, it's very hard to go back. Like if you're there doing it's, more it, takes when you're there, because uh, you you can never choose better. footage that you never got. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, why would you, why would you spend $50,000 building a set, $20,000 lighting it, bring 60 people there and do two? Right. right. You know, like we nailed it. Maybe. Yeah. Like, you sure? Okay. You know, I mean, look, it doesn't, doesn't mean spontaneity doesn't have a place and it's not sure. sometimes, you know, sometimes the second one is the best, you know, sometimes some actors are like, look, I just, I, I gotta, you know, someone's crying and they're really emotional and they have to get to, you know, and it's like, it takes a long time for them to get there and you can, you know, but you know, films are made in most films, I think are made in 
you know, they're, they're editorially assembled in continuity. And so, you know, if, if, if you, you know, if you have a scene that requires six pieces, six shots, six pieces of coverage or whatever, and it's really emotional scene, you know, that, that person's going to have to get there six times or maybe, you know, and if they can't, okay, well, that's going to force us to do this in two shots. And, you know, it's like all this dynamics affect each other. You know, it's, it's a, it's a Venn diagram. It's not, there's no one size fits all answer, you know? It makes sense. And, and, and sort of bringing it back to the killer, because that's the, the big thing that we're talking about here for November. And and we know that some of the folks in our community have already seen it, which is really exciting. But is there anything that we should know before we go? And when I say that, kind of thinking about your role with the film and, and what to do, is is there something that was in your process that kind of came up to the overall look or visual theme of what's there? What should we know about the killer and how it looks as we go to see it? The movie is is very much a, 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 a cinematic conversation about subjectivity, I think, hmm. and 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 point of view, and um, you know, it's it's a character who never allows anyone in his personal space. Um, you know, he's not he doesn't he uh, he's always sort of uh, apart, or distant from you know he's he's hiding amongst everyone else, but he doesn't interact. Yeah. And I you know I I thought that was really interesting to be in a. a to put the camera in someone's space where they never allow anybody else, you know, <laughs> and we, you know, so we're constantly cutting between his point of view, watching, you know, his target or watching the world and experiencing the world, not as a participant, but as a, as a silent observer. And then we, and then we switch and now we're silently observing him that I found, I found particularly interesting. You know, there's very little dialogue in the movie. So it's, it's, there's voiceover, but there's very little dialogue. So it's, you know, it's a character study to some degree, I think, you know, Love it. I love the shifting perspective there too of the of the character and then the audience embodying the character in 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 a way um, of, sure. of what he's doing. It's very instructive and interesting. I think that's we're we're super excited to see it. Good. I can't I can't wait to hear what you think. Okay, so now that you've seen the movie and you had this conversation before, uh, what's your take on how the thing looks? Tom, you go first. It is. Uh, he talked about how it is so much of a uh, character study of control, of discipline. And that that's one of the reasons that I said it's sort of Fincher at his most Fincherish. It's like this character, the way that they've done it, was created for Fincher because when he when his camera goes nuts, it goes nuts. Like the running in seven mm-hmm. when during the shootout in the apartment, everything else is locked down. Yeah. Everything else is movement. This is very, uh, he called um, the camera work with um, Fassbender's character balletic. Like they're almost dancing together. Even little things like the, the opening uh, yoga part, which I, which I think might still be going on. Like it's so <laughs> patient. You use the word patient. It's incredibly, I mean, what a weird way to open a movie and it's still gripping because of how it looks. And part of that is it's so motion controlled and perfect to just him. It's kind of like how your camera, Pete was just following you around on the mm-hmm. live stream. That's how it was. It's, it's, it's like the camera is a part of him. And then to also use the huge amount of my favorite thing in cinema is uh, rack focusing. So something in the foreground being in focus, background, and then switching, that's all about 
subjectivity. That's all about viewpoint. Yes. That's all, you know, and so that's one of the biggest things uh, in this movie. And so I was thrilled by it. It was uh, that that whole, you know, rack focusing bit. It made it was a throwback to like Benjamin Button and Panic Room to me. Like it was yep. so much of of using a, a lockdown frame and guiding your focus with guiding your attention with focus, I think is really masterful. JJ, you're going to say something. Which is neat without showing <laughs> off like he did so much in Panic Room. Yeah. 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 There was Which so was much CGI so going much. through into things mm-hmm. and down pipes and stuff. And another thing. Okay, JJ. Well, and that's, I mean, that's not, that, that's kind of the beauty of this movie, right? I, what right. I really liked about what, how they used the camera is, again, kind of thinking about the way of the POV. Like I talked about the sound earlier, about how the sound puts you in the perspective of the killer of Fastbender. And then you think of how they use the camera for that too. Like all that patience and time and room that you're talking about, Tommy, was all sort of woven together in the way with the script and the images and then the cutting, the, the the camera editing that made us feel like we were part of the killer character. My One of my favorite shots is when he gets back to uh, the Dominican Republic and he's uh, he comes up to his gate and he sees that someone's been there. So he hops the gate and then takes this long run. And the camera is so we've already established all that stuff that I'm that I'm talking to you about. Right. So we we have this go away, come in, go you know into the POV. And then he has this long run where the camera is with him the whole way. You see him directly in your foreground. And you're also witnessing uh, along this entire run as he comes up to think it was gorgeous and executed so well. And it gave you ex- everything that was done from a camera perspective for me, gave you exactly the feeling that the character was in. And again, this is a character whose personality, whose demeanor is so far afield from who I am as a person. And that's why I loved it. Like everything Eric <laughs> talked about, about this, this character study and control and all this stuff. I'm like, wow, they did it by the way that they executed the film. I'm sure, it, and Tom, I didn't know it was a graphic novel. I, I, I saw that it was based on the book, but I'm sure that the graphic novel sets you up in that way too. I, I think mm-hmm. it all felt like a sort of great union of art to put me in the place that they were trying to put me to. And I bought in. Yeah, it's it's interesting you, you say it that way. And I, I think the other thing that his style so perfectly aligns to, to Fincher, uh, because Fassbender is such a, a uh, physical guy, but in a weird way, like he is clearly like physically strong, but he's also very lean. Right. Yeah. And so uh, watching him move from sort of yoga and again, that sort of balletic capture to that run, he just looks good doing all of those things. And because of the contrast with what he tells us in the voiceover about why he's imitating a German tourist and he's kind of all schlubby and eating at McDonald's and whatever, it is a a wonderful surprise when he unleashes and right. is able to unleash in the Dominican Republic against the government. He was probably in Louisiana by then. No, he was still in Dominican Republic uh, or Florida. The big somewhere. fight scene is in yeah, Florida. Yeah, the big Florida. fight yeah. scene. Yeah. So uh, first, let's talk about the fight scene. Tom, you wanted to say something. I want to say something about the whole subjectivity and POV thing, but changing it to visuals instead of like JJ, you were talking about earbuds in, you know, we're so with him. There was no real shaky cam during the fight, but what there was, was it would shake when the impacts would happen. Oh, I didn't notice that. (laughs) As if you were, as if you were feeling his body, if you were looking out of his eyes, the room would shake when you're slammed into something. I love it. It was very much like using sound uh, of, let's see, hold on, hold on. Darren Aronofsky in um, 
Requiem for a Dream when Marlon Williams is screaming, help me. And the camera goes, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. and it's same with uh, David Fincher in Seven when uh, uh, what's his name is bringing the big speech, the we were the all singing, all dancing monkeys of the world. The camera does the same thing, time to his voice. Mm-hmm. And so it's using reverberations to move the camera. That's when the camera shakes. And I thought that was, I've never really seen that before. I thought that was thrilling. I don't exactly know how exactly you do that. That's really neat. God, I didn't even notice it. I didn't notice it either. But I mean, was in that fight scene, there's that and there's this sort of this really sort of stark graphic capturing of what's happening there. Was there, and Tommy, you might be better at picking this up than I am, but was there anything sped up in there? It felt so fast and so brutal with what they were doing. I didn't notice any sped up, but I'm usually very noticeable of that because it always bothers me right it always makes me think of benny of benny hill yeah so i don't i don't notice that but i think part (laughs) of this was the least benny hill scene in any history oh you didn't see the guy in the monkey suit run out (laughs) um part of maybe what makes it feel that way is the smoothness that is never there we got a we originally it was like just throw the camera around a bunch and cut, 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 because no one's actually doing action. Then it became, they're really doing action, so just leave it on and have it be super, super brutal, like Atomic Blonde, all the Jason Borg movies. This is like another evolution uh, evolution of that, of it's completely like nothing is wasted. It reminds me of what you just said about how the long thing of him running through the woods, not none of it is wasted except what needs to happen. Which, and it seems like maybe the camera is doing the same kind of which thing. Which again, so again, like, I love what you're saying because that brings me back to the character. The ideal for this yep. character is nothing is wasted. No wasted right. movement, no wasted. Everything we see is him meant to be executing in a tight and efficient fashion. And, I and as soon that. as something is has its use done, it is immediately Tossed destroyed away. and discarded. Yes. He never keeps anything. Yes. Whatever he can yeah. carry out. Right. That was just right. a, like him getting out of that of, of the uh, we work, which was the perfect <laughs> touch, by the way. That, that was, was I'm, really I'm sure some of that comes from the graphic novel. It's, uh, but if it doesn't like that was amazing that he sets up not in and, an Airbnb because of the nanny cams and makes me it, never want to use Airbnb again. It's perfectly uh, timed, too. Right. Yeah. Like we were yeah. just fell apart is, like yeah just completely <laughs> fell apart uh it, you know and there were a lot of those things that i that i think are interesting and maybe this is why i am i'm i'm anchoring a bit on a feel of soderbergh because so much mm-hmm. of soderbergh is tied to culture's current right and he's doing we work in this movie and he name drops postmates and like they're Amazon. all Amazon, so much Amazon. And that feels like a Soderbergh trope to me. Like, let's bring in the real world as much as we can. And in Soderbergh's movies are after the pandemic, everybody's in a mask. And he made a real big deal about how, you know, masks are part of the culture. We're going to do that. Uh, and so th- that made this movie feel uh, sort of culturally resonant and present in a way that may not serve it well. Right. Not, you know, that that at some point over time that we work reference is going to be dated. And I wager that oh, sooner rather than later. Um, right. And huh. that'll be an artifact of history, whereas I can watch Sesevenin any time and feel like I'm right there. Like, I think that has mm-hmm. a longer shelf life. Uh, for some of those references. So I'm curious. I mean, did, did that hit you guys at all? I didn't catch the fact that, of course, we work will be like, what? 
at yeah. some point because <laughs> it is so but i mean it's almost worth it for its absolute perfection in time yeah. right now yeah which is really cool and you know as far as like using real current references and stuff he did so much of that in uh fight club also the destroying you're, of Americana, yeah, all right. of the IKEA stuff, all of those things. He's fascinated but, by. But and again, so much of that. Yeah. No, that's, so funny. <laughs> yeah. that's great. That's right. So much of that like was it. like from the source material too, though, right? Like right. that was a, right. uh, definitely a pairing of source material, and that's what I can't comment on. I mean, is the comic, is the graphic novel of the killer that attuned to life in the present? Not that I remember. Yeah. No, because it's a little bit bigger than life. Yeah. I think it's also making, yeah, it's maybe making a comment on, maybe I'm probably digging too much into this, but like dispassionate, there's no karma, there's no justice, there's no reality. That can be a very capitalistic American, mm -hmm. nihilistic kind yeah. of feeling, especially right now. So to Americanize him and have him just, you know, to really make sure we see it's a Starbucks cup, to make sure yes. that we see it's these kind of things, it really grounds it in a... Are we maybe for some people kind of like a no country for old men? Are we back in a wild west? We just don't know it because everything is so commodified. Well, I That's think he's definitely saying that. Right. I mean, honestly, okay. so I was so bought into this movie. I'll give you the example. I mean, <laughs> you, you, that like you think about McDonald's as being schlubby or like this kind of thing. I was so bought into this sort of mythos of what was happening with this character that my assumption when he went to McDonald's was that it was the least likely place where he could get tracked. So he went right. to the most prevalent place and had the least the least unique thing, right? Because it, as we talked about in the beginning of the movie, as we're describing this character, we don't stand out, this kind of thing, which I think is right. interesting, too. I mean, I'm, I'm just a lot of the things from the movie are kind of throwing through my mind right now. But a lot of the aliases at the beginning felt not connected. And by the time you get to the end of the movie, we get like George Jefferson and we get like Sam Malone and we get these. Well, because they're all sitcoms. Are yeah, they the all? Odd, the, the earlier ones were all of them. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oscar Madison and Felix Unger. And they were the odd couple. Felix Unger. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Bob, Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart. Yeah. When Sam Malone yeah. came up, I was like, how can she not reference that that's Sam yeah. Malone? Like, that's good. Right. You, you got to know who Sam Malone is. Well, because that's an interesting other possible undercurrent is that he's just not as good yes. as he keeps saying that he is because he's got this kind of lowbrow thing. The movie starts off with him saying, this is everything that you need to do. And oops, I made a mistake. And the times when he is taken by surprise, his own inner monologue saying pretentious things, that's why he's caught off guard is because he's busy doing those things. And he's constantly is... failing his inner monologue, his mantra. He's constantly saying a line from the mantra and then not doing it, right? So I get right. that. But then if, you be, if you're objective about what happened is that before this error, he is batting a thousand, right? He says that. And then as he cleans up his mess, he literally cleans up anyone who knows that he's a person and then eliminates in a very pragmatic and resourceful way any chance of anything happening in the future. So while, yes, he may not be as good as he thinks he is, he's also very, very good. Right. That That is, I think, the, the possibly the confusing thing, right, is that 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 dissonance between this character, the fact that he is a wildly unreliable na narrator for most of the film, that friction is what I think makes him so interesting because you're right, JJ, like he cleans up the mess. He cleans up the mess with like a plum as a as an assassin, right? He does things that are gruesome and keeps he screws up, but does he screw up in a way 
that that uh, feels clumsy or is it just uh, you know the natural things go wrong in jobs sometimes and i'm i'm trying to to work out if this is a statement that he's making about the caliber of the protagonist or the workaday nature of this job like any other completely hyper genericized job i love that I love it. I, I want to go with that. I think that's excellent. And I hadn't thought of that before you brought it up. So I'm going to choose your second option. There are sometimes easier ways to do what he's doing. The film starts with saying, not starts with saying, he says, you got to have boredom. You got to be ready mm-hmm. for boredom. But then laments, when was the last time I had something interesting? When was the last time I had a nice drowning? Something yeah. <laughs> up close. He did say that. And then he continually, I feel like he... There is an element of overcomplicating certain things when you have a gun and there's a person and an alley. Do you need to go through all of this stuff that leads to the bear, the yes. bear joke? The yes. whole bear joke could be about you're not really in it for the kill. You're in it for the hunt. You've grown bored by your McDonald's killing job. And so when you make a mistake whether you made it subconsciously on purpose or not, just to have something to do, unclear. But that's something interesting. Is he wants to dig in. He wants to make it a little bit harder. Well, and I, 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 yeah, I, I want to point directly to something that Brian is saying here in the chat, because he said, which isn't to, with everything that you guys are talking about, which isn't to say don't meticulously plan. Right. And that's a filmmaking analogy. But it reminds me of something that Eric specifically said in our talk with him, where he says, you know, if it's easy it's like, oh God, what are we doing wrong? Yeah. <laughs> like making making the movie. Exactly. If making the movie like, is easy. Making right. the movie needs to have some friction, some dissonance, like you're saying, Pete, about yes, it's a day job. We do this. We make movies. This guy kills people mm-hmm. and he has a process. And we all go through the the amazing thing of having a storage unit in seven different states that are loaded with guns and different aliases and money and everything and license plates. And also I get McDonald's and accidentally shoot, a, you know, a sex worker. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't want to let that go because that's a really good point, JJ. I mean, look at what he said when he's in that that storage closet, like, again, to the point of him being bored and testing the boundaries of what he can get away with as a result, perhaps, of the boredom of having all of these storage closets full of incriminating crap. And he's just waiting for the for the payments to run out so somebody will find them. Yep. And I wonder right, what storage they'll say, wars. right? Storage <laughs> wars, right? We'll just throw it up and leave it to the fates, right? Because, again, it, does he believe he's that good to be able to get away or that, in fact, the one plan that he does have is, you know, take all the evidence of, of infraction and just throw it in all kinds of different places so no one will ever see it. Like he goes through that whole process and says it much more elegantly than I did. It, <laughs> it is a I think it's a real testament to to a pro at a place in his life where he's frustrated, just like we all get frustrated with a job we've done forever. Mm-hmm. And that makes yeah. it interesting to me. That mm-hmm. makes it interesting. Yeah. And he's retiring. I mean, honestly, yeah. this is about his retirement. He cashes out and sends all of his money to the Caribbean yeah. <laughs> as George Jefferson moving on up to the east side to live. <laughs> the east side. Can I I, I want to ask a question about I mean, the thing's called the killer. Mm-hmm. And I think the only I think he only killed with guns, except for the mm-hmm. he snapped neck. He snapped mm-hmm. the neck with what's her name down the stairs. 
And did he kill the guy in Florida with a staple staple gun? I guess. Does that still count? He kills that one guy with a staple gun, not gun gun. Yeah, you're right. That was a that was a nail gun um, in his chest and watched him bleed out. The lawyer. And another example of it not going to plan. Yes. He's telling us how long it's going to take and then boop, the guy just dies. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the the thing that, that struck me is that the opening credits of the movie, which I think are one of the artifacts of where this is being made for streaming, those opening right. credits flew by and yeah. were like, that was a crazy, like, inelegant way to introduce the film. I thought that was a blunt force trauma kind of way to, to get us into the film. And yet... There were all kinds of like montage sort of Mission Impossible montage sort of kills that we don't get in the movie. And I was eager for the dot of radioactive material on the cup that he teases at the end, or I was eager for a poisoning or a drowning. Like all of that felt like, you know, he was teasing me for for things that he has done, but we don't get to see. And I was I was more curious about that. Did you guys feel left behind at all? I, I didn't, but I love the inferences. And I, I mean, especially it, it, so much so that you bringing up the fact that he killed so many people with guns, that when he's talking to the billionaire and brings up all these other ways that he can kill them, I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy can kill anybody anyway. So I yeah. agree with you to that point. But I liked the inferences and it lent itself to or it helped me get to the point where this guy is a Swiss Army knife of death. So Swiss Army knife of death. <laughs> and I actually liked the, in, the, the 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 credits at the beginning. I agree with you 100% that it's like, oh, yeah, this is streaming. Like, that's yeah. what we see there. But for me, it felt unique. It felt different. It felt like something that I had never seen before. And I think that's why when you asked the initial question about how it would be cinematically, I'd be so curious to see how that comes off in a theater. I just I think he uses opening credits better than any other director that we have and has throughout his career. Even this one. Picture. I loved it. I did too. Because it also, it was really, it was exciting. I saw the reason for it to give us a little bit of a jolt because we're about to go to sleep mm -hmm. for an action movie called The Killer. Yeah, right. We're about to go to sleep for like 20 minutes yeah. of just watching someone walk watch through a window. And it also shows a little bit of that wash repeat. He did all of those things before it started. Yeah. And so, yeah, I bet he is bored if he's done all of those things. Right. No, that's a great point. Yeah. That's a great way to look yeah. at it. And I liked it because it really reminded me, I'm so sorry, of the down and dirtiness of the girl with the spider tattoo. Uh, girl with the girl dragon with the tattoo dragon opening tattoo. credits. Yeah. Girl Spider-Man <laughs> tattoo. Um, where it's just like it's just like drenched in menace and all like really hyper, hyper fast yes. kind of imagery that puts you it puts you in the mind of the movie. Yeah, that's a really good And that's point. like I started to really start noticing that one, of course, with Seven. Seven yeah. puts you in the mind of the movie better than any opening credits I think ever has. I definitely agree with that. It's at the top. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so I just, before we bust out of here, we've got to talk about our principal uh, uh, folks in here because it all, everything leads to the Tilda Swinton uh, mm. Q-tip cameo. Uh, yeah. I, I call it a cameo. It's not not a cameo, but... Um, it? It's a show, showpiece. It's a show. Everyone gets a show showpiece. So yeah. I, you know, here we are. It's uh, one of the criticisms of the film has been that it's essentially a glorified travelogue. And he goes from from country to country and finds a guy, kills the guy and goes to the next country. And it's like, look at what he can do with fake documents and never have a problem in an airport and everything's fine. And the the confrontations with the other 
killers or with the other the the three people that he's actually trying to to get deal with um the weight of those confrontations i think is is different we have a giant fight scene the 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 brute force battle and then we have the intellectual battle would you call it with tilda swinton uh, and and her role and then uh, uh or maybe it's a battle of wits for her and the and and then the redemption sequence at the end with our one percenter can you describe your sense of how you feel about those relationships and those confrontations uh, throughout the movie? Maybe, JJ, you want to go first? Well, I really liked them. And, they, you know, it, as you're talking about these things, I think actually you could consider the lawyer as maybe one, too. So you've got the lawyer, yeah, the point. brute, the expert and the client. Um, but as you're describing them, it makes me think of the Princess Bride and think about, you know, the Dread Pirate uh, Roberts going through Fezzik and an ego and then finally yeah. getting to, to the Battle the of Wits. fingered man. Yeah, right. exactly. So I, I, I don't know, but I liked it. And I, it, it did feel, you know, somewhat episodic. And I, I understand the travelogue criticism, but I didn't, I didn't care. Because again, I was bought in. So then I get to these set pieces or these particular moments. And I felt like each of them really did a good job of setting the stage at how they were different, and how they were important to the arc of the character. And again, he didn't really change much. He was just on this vengeance trail, but I love me a revenge movie and I love the way they went. Um, again, he didn't really even have much dialogue in those scenes. It was more about the characters that he was encountering. And I thought they did fantastic. I really like Tilda Swinton. I think she does all different kinds of good things on screen. Me too. And what I mentioned before that one of the things I loved about the Fassbender character was his pragmatism. And you think about the how he killed, when he killed, and when he didn't kill, why he chose not to kill, all seemed very rooted in logic and the best case scenario for this character. And I loved that. And I loved how it was different in every one of those interactions. The one percenter, the one that he lets live. Yes. The one that the he one. lets live is the person that is like, oh, no, I don't deserve to die here and I don't believe I'm going to die here. Whereas the lawyer is immediately sort of giving up and is saying, like, this is unprofessional. This is a mess. He's not trying to placate anyone. He's just like, this is you falling apart. That's not what you say to a killer. The woman says, when you kill me, make it look non-suspicious. Tilda Swinton right away is like, I've practiced for this moment yeah. for so long, and yet I'm still not ready for it. It's like they're dead before they, they're capitulating mm -hmm. to their own death in the face of the killer. Whereas the one percenter is like, no, what? No. Yeah. This doesn't belong to me. I just wonder if there's anything is interesting about that. Because there's one... That's the one difference. I think it's terribly interesting. And if you consider their individual characters and their life stories that we don't see that that's interesting there. But the reason why the one percenter thing is interesting to me is what I what I bought in and as pragmatism, like I said, in that right, yes. he announces before he goes in that this if I kill him. The police are going to care. They didn't care about anyone else, but I cannot kill him. I need to just scare him. And he does. And the, the one percenter doesn't know him. So it, right, it, he, right. he leaves no trail here. It's still it's still part of the story. But all of those other he definitely has to kill the lawyer. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Right. So I, I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed the the difference in approach from each of those 
encounter interactions. I, I think that's a that's a great point, because when we by the time we meet the one percenter, right, all the things you said, JJ, absolutely true. Also, the one percenter gives off this whole privilege vibe that everything that happened that led to that moment is a customer service error. Yeah. And yeah. I, I yep. kind of I, I really dug that. I thought that was a, <laughs> a great way for that conversation to go, uh, mm-hmm. especially when we lead into that conversation and he sees Fassbender standing there, the killer is standing there and he can't, the guy won't hang up. He's chewing out the guy talking about you like how, yes, I, it would be my fault for not firing you earlier. I got to go. I got to go. I'm hanging up on you. That whole sequence was dynamite for me. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, Okay, so I think we're all on board with the movie. Are we all on board with the soundscape? And of course, I'm talking Mm. about Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, right? But mostly the Smiths. Man, the Smiths <laughs> rebirth in this movie. Yes. What you think? Here to wish you an unhappy birthday. And yes, <laughs> I thought it worked. Um, I'm not a huge Smiths guy, but boy, again, putting us in the spirit of this character, yeah. that completely works for me. And right. I loved, I loved the Trent Reznor stuff. I, at different times, what they were, you, you say soundscape, what they were using as score felt like SFX. Yes. Like it was, yep. it was so good and perfect for what this movie called for. I thought I want yep. that in the theater. I want to see that in the theater. Well, and I, it plays for me too. Like I listen, that's my, like, that is my soundscape music, right? Is, is there from the social network is the top for me, absolute pinnacle of their work, but all of them are on rotation when I'm like really trying to focus. And this one's right in there. You put some good headphones on and it is exactly what you want. Um, I like speaking of soundtrack versus score. One of the jokes that I liked, I thought it was a joke, is one of the tropes in all the John Wick movies, in all of the uh, Mission Impossible movies, is there's always some big rave or party that mm-hmm. you have to infiltrate. And it's always a bunch of scanned the glad people and the music is going. And this time, because it's so American, it was a workout club. It was like the Equinox or whatever that place was. That's what he has to call it. That's Valley Equinox, which is, you know, Valley is an Equinox. Valley is in. But like that's his version of this rave scene. I could just see Fincher because he's such a little stinker, like the most talented person in the world. Just be like, yeah, OK, you want You want a big rave scene? Yeah. He's going to go, go beep, beep, and steal a, <laughs> steal someone's fob. And that's it. There's your rave scene. Enjoy it. Like, I just love that, that he is... just refuses to give the, give us those things. Yeah. There's something really, really wonderfully mean-spirited and very satirical about that. I love cool. that yeah. you just called your favorite director a little stinker. He is, though, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, it was uh, just uh, I. I think it was lovely, and I think we need to we need to get toward the the best part, which is how we are going to talk about it on Letterbox with our ratings and reviews. Uh, first, you know the housekeeping. Uh, join the online community. We'd love to see you over there at thenextreel.com slash discord. And, uh, you know, what keeps the lights on is heading over to thenextreel.com slash membership. Sign up for a few bucks a month and uh, you can learn more about all of our benefits. And we would love to see you in the triple secret channels in the community. And of course, you are supporting this show and allowing us to continue to do this and pay for hosting and all the stuff that goes into making a podcast for so long. And I should say, as we record this right now, gentlemen, it is November 11th. And (gasps) this today is the 12th birthday of the next reel. Oh my gosh. 12 years. Happy birthday. Really? 11, 11. 
Mm-hmm. Happy birthday. Yeah, lots of people with birthdays today. The next year. Yeah, it's a big Hello. deal. It's a big day. Uh, and so that's the deal. But now let us turn our attention to the stars. Where will you, as I am want to say, where will you steal stars from other movies to give them to this movie? JJ, you first. I love that you went with me first. And I'm literally, as you watch the screen, I'm changing my rating as we talk <laughs> because <laughs> of what you just said, which is stealing stars from other movies. I am going to do that because uh, Brian Blake talked about in the chat uh, that Tarantino and you think about Kill Bill and the sort of revenge train that's there. And the movie that you just that I just stole a, a star, a half star here from is a bullet train. Right. I, I mean, uh, I. I I was it, it, terribly disappointed by that film because it was filled with a bunch of stuff that I felt like I had already seen and a bunch of the, the kind of novelty that didn't feel new. And what I loved about The Killer is that this felt new, different, stripped down, grounded, but that same revenge story that I like in a way that I hadn't seen before. So I just stole a half star from Bullet Train to give it a 4.5 out of 5. Because I liked it that much. It was a four before. I made it 4.5 okay. now. And definitely a like uh, for right. me. Okay. All right. Yes. Thomas. I'm going to steal a star from, do you guys remember The Finest Hours? <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, my God. Dumb movie. I'm stealing no stars because there were no stars for that movie for me. Hey, you turned on your lights just like she did. I'm giving it a four. And with the knowledge that there's a very good chance that it will go up every Fincher movie for the most part has gone up same with paul thomas anderson like Mm -hmm. i I start somewhere and then it just goes up and up and i find myself wanting to watch this i call it competency porn it will be a cool thing to sort of put on every once in a while for sure just sort of revisit so i will give four to 4.5 but we'll keep it at four right now thank you the end okay so this movie i can see the the movie that is like an that i've probably seen more than any other film any other film is Oh, it's it's Ronan. Oh, oh, I own that film. Yeah, I watched that movie and for many years watched that movie just on repeat, just kind of looping huh? because I just every time I look at it, there's something else. I it, I just look at it. and I think I like what's going on right there. Let me watch for a few minutes. Right. It's just on in the background. I can see this movie becoming uh, in the class of Ronan for me. I really enjoyed my time with this movie. And there is so much going on in the, in the movie that is so subtle and um that I, I just feel like I could do that. I could look at it at any moment and be somehow inspired to to keep working or, you know, write more or do something. Like, I just really, really enjoyed it. And mm. I should say, as an aside, this movie has a lot of voiceover, and I usually hate voiceover so, so much. I didn't hate this at all. I really no. enjoyed it. So Loved I'm it. going a different strategy than you guys, which is I'm not going to rate it what I think and then with the eye to go up, I think I'm just going to give it five stars and a heart right now because I'm, wow. I'm an optimist. I am an optimist. And mm-hmm. uh, so that is where I am. Five stars and a heart. And I, I probably took all the stars from Bullet Train. That's why you get <laughs> this is why you give certain movies you don't like five stars, because where will you take them later? Right. <laughs> like I give the finest hours five stars because you got to bank them. <laughs> I love the comparison to Ronan because apart from the much heralded car chases in mm-hmm. that movie, which is what everyone remembers, there's also an enormous amount of patience. Yes. 
Yes, there is, in that Tom. Movie. There, there's constantly hiding of guns that they might uh-huh. need later that they don't need <laughs> later. Like, it's very, like, this is what you have to do. To be ready. Setting of table for a feast that never happens. Yes. It's very interesting. Hey, very this is all great, guys, but very seriously, ain't nobody giving the finest hours five stars. <laughs> no, no amount of Ben Foster can save them. Giving, <laughs> giving finest hours five stars is equivalent to Robert De Niro hiding guns in Ronin. That's yes. what you do, <laughs> and you got to get an Audi yes. because it's got a little shove to it. Oh yeah, we could go all day. Uh, yep. All right, uh, this has been really so much fun, you guys. What a fantastic film, and and I'm so glad we were able to talk about it. Uh, and uh, yeah. I really appreciate you guys for doing this. Um, so on behalf of, you know, uh, Tommy Metz, the handsomest uh, podcaster in podcasting, oh. and Justin J.J. Yeager, I'm Pete Wright, and we will see you next month when we are going to be talking about J.J. Silent Night. John Woo. Yes. With apparently Joel Kinnaman with nothing to say. I can't wait for that movie. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. It's, it's been the Film Board meeting adjourned. Here on the Film Board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denny Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. Thenextreel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and the Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals and get your next read today. Next Reel.